John chapter 3, we have come to verse 22, where it says, And after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. So after these things, uh, John has been very uh, distinct in following this early ministry of Christ, coming up to Jerusalem, uh, hitting Cana of Galilee before he comes to be there at a wedding, turning the water to wine, then his journey up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, makes his presence known, and then he has this quiet meeting with Nicodemus, which takes most of the chapter. Then it says, after these things, one of John's favorite phrases, they go into the hill country of Judea. They're leaving the capital, the, the you know, metropolis, Jerusalem, and now he heads out into the countryside with his disciples. So it says, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in and on near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. And then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi... He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but what I I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from above, from heaven, is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth him not the Spirit by measure. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things unto his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So Jesus, leaving the busyness of Jerusalem, uh, heads to the countryside with his disciples and says that he tarries there. We don't know how long. He takes some time with them after Jerusalem, probably answering questions, spending time with them. And it says that he's baptizing there. If you look over in chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us specifically, but Jesus himself 
baptized no one, but his disciples did the baptizing. So it's an interesting picture because it tells us he comes to an area where John is baptizing also. John's disciples get into an argument with, depending on your translation, a Jew or Jews, plural, about purifying that type of baptism. And then John's disciples come and say, Rabbi, you know, the one you bore witness to and so forth, beyond Jordan, he's baptizing and everybody's going, you know, our denomination is sinking and his denomination is growing. You know, it's kind of a jealousy kind of. So then John the Baptist takes the rest of the chapter, and I believe it's John the Baptist speaking throughout, to say the last things he has to say to his disciples. We'll hear from John the Baptist once more, and that comes from Machaerus, from the prison. Are you the one that's to come, or should we look for another? But the last thing he has to say to his disciples, as they're wondering why Jesus is becoming more prominent, is in the rest of this chapter. And no doubt John the Baptist is longing for his disciples to become disciples of Jesus as Andrew and John and others had done. So we have this interesting picture. There's certainly some takeaways for us in this historic part of John as it brings us to the woman of Samaria in chapter 4. So after these things came Jesus and his disciples unto the land of Judea, the countryside, and there he tarried with them, took time with them, and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Inan, near to Salem, the reason because there was much water there, and they came, they continued to come in steady procession, and were baptized. So John is baptizing in Inan. We don't know the location. The Hebrew word means springs. So it's an area where there's natural springs. And it says it's near Salem, peace. It's hard for us to identify that location today. Most scholars feel somewhere uh, in what was Samaria, part of northern Samaria. Um, He's baptizing there. Um, and people are still coming. It says in droves, steady droves. And it says he's baptizing there because there's much water there. Now, that's important when you're baptizing. Uh, It tells us, too, that this is immersion. You know, he's dunking them. And it's, it's very human. Jesus there, his disciples, you know, John is in the water with his disciples. I'm sure some of the people are baptized by his disciples. Some are baptized by John himself. But then those who are following Jesus, it seems that he stands on the shore and it's Peter and John and the others that are baptizing people coming to Christ. And Jesus himself is not doing the baptism. I don't know why. I think perhaps because it tells us he knows what's in man. And Paul has to deal with a problem in the Corinthian church where he says, you know, some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollo, some of Cephas. And he says, I thank God I baptized none of you but the household of Stephanos because they were dividing over it. So you can imagine even these people would be saying, you got baptized by John? I got baptized by the head of the church, Peter. Oh, he's not the head of the church. I got baptized by Jesus, you know. So maybe he just knows the way we are. He stands there. He's not doing the baptism by himself, as himself. But the disciples 
are doing the baptizing. It tells us that here. And there arose an argument, verse 25. There arose a question. The the Greek word has the idea of a dispute. And it's between these two groups, between John's disciples and the Jews, or it's a manuscript argument, or a Jew, about purifying, called the Jews because when the northern tribes were carried away, it was Judah and Benjamin that actually considered itself part of Judah in the south. They were the first to return from captivity, much less from Assyria, but they came back from Babylon, and because they came back to Judah, they were called Jews then. They called them the Jews, even in this day. John will quite often, through his gospel, writing in 90 AD to Gentiles, will call them the Jews. So there's an argument between some of John's disciples and the Jews, and it's about purifying. You see, John the Baptist and Jesus, evidently, it's a baptism unto repentance. Now, the Jews didn't do that. They might ask a proselyte of the gate, a Gentile who's coming to Judaism, to repent in their baptism. But with the, with the Jews, it was purifying. It was ablutions. It was, you know, you purified yourself before you went up to the temple. But John the Baptist is calling everybody, even the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. You need to get baptized. You need to repent. So there's some Jews arguing with the disciples of John the Baptist about this whole idea of purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, and I believe it's the only place John the Baptist is referred to as Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, so they're on the west side of the Jordan River now, beyond Jordan on the other side, to whom you bore witness... Behold, the same is baptizing, baptizeth, and all men come to him. Now, that's an exaggeration. All men weren't coming because it says John was continually baptizing. But what they're saying is we see the crowds growing with him. His denomination is growing. Ours is kind of plateauing here. And you bore witness of him. You gave him cred. You pointed at him and said, Behold the Lamb of the world. The Lamb takes away the sin of the world. You added to his reputation. And this is the thanks you get. Now he's taking everybody and they're following him. There seems to be some jealousy. But you know human beings are not like that. You know, here they are with the greatest prophet that ever lived, greatest born among women. No one's arisen greater than John. And they thought they've got a corner on the market. And now people are following this other one that John gave cred to. And they're saying, everybody's following him now. So John's going to take the rest of the chapter to speak to that. These are his disciples. The greatest thing he can do for his disciples is make them disciples of Christ. And that kind of flavors the rest of the chapter. And he says in verse 27, John answered and said, that plural there, answered and said, tells us, listen up, that a man can receive nothing, and the Greek is not even one thing is the idea, except it be given him from above. Great takeaway for us. Nobody can receive anything. Your translation might say take to themselves, which is a ridiculous idea too. The idea is you can't do that with a single thing unless it's given to you from above. Paul would say this, 
For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as though thou had not received? Anything goes on in your life that's good, why do you act like it's yours? He says, you know, in ministry, in our home, in our calling, where we work, anything that's good, he said, none of that can be happening unless it's given from above. Not one thing, as you and I, as God's children. The good things that might happen in our lives are things that come from above. And then he says to his disciples, look, you know, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. That was John the Baptist's ministry. And it's very interesting, he's going to say here, look, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. You don't understand what's going on. He said, you know, I've been sent on a mission. Born to a couple in their 90s like Abraham and Sarah. They died early, been alone in the wilderness for decades, eating these stinking grasshoppers and wild honey. You know, the spirit of Elijah said from the time he was born, the Holy Spirit was on him. He didn't drink any wine, but he was filled with the spirit. The greatest prophet that ever lived, Jesus says, among those born of women, none hath arisen greater than John, not Abraham, not Isaac, not David, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel. No one, no voice in human history greater than John's. And all of those years of seminary, alone in the wilderness, he steps onto the scene, and now within a couple months, he's saying, now he's here. That was my job, to prepare the way, to let everybody know, I'm done. He must increase, I must decrease. You think, what a, what a perspective, you know. It, 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 I told you, he, he, nobody has anything unless it's given from above. Not me, and it's certainly not him. He came from above, he's going to tell them. And he says, and you know that I bore witness. You heard me, that, that I am not the Christ, but I'm sent to prepare his way, he says. He says, try to understand this way. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, not the best man. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is Fulfilled. Then he picks a very human. Now, look, the Jews understood in the Old Testament Jehovah was portrayed, Ezekiel, Hosea, different places, as the husband of Israel. That was his wife, the adulterous wife of Jehovah. There was a marriage in the picture, God trying to tell the nation how much he cared for them, how much he loved them. Here, as he speaks, they understand that the, the one who has the bride, he says, it's... it's the bridegroom, the fact that people are following him. There's, this is why I came, is to have people follow him. And the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's friend is not in our context what the best man is at a modern wedding. The friend of the bridegroom in this day made sure the catering was good, whatever the feast was, made sure things were taken care of. And the friend of the bridegroom that stood with him at times even went and brought the bride the night that the bridegroom came and blew the trumpet to the bridegroom 
And he's the one who stood by then, and he says, to hear the bridegroom's voice, that's my joy. That's, that's what I lived for. That's what God raised me all these years for. That's what I've been here for. That's what he's anointed me for. And, and it's very interesting, too, because, you know, I wonder what John the Baptist might know about the wedding in Cana of Galilee. See, John the Baptist comes austere, living in the wilderness, in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey. He's dressed like Elijah. And that's what God called him to. That was given to him from above. That was his role. He would never have been comfortable at a wedding in Cana. But Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came to step into our lives, not just to live out in the desert and eat bugs. He came so he could come into our homes, to our marriages, to our funerals to our feasts, to our tables, to our devotions, to our driving. He just, he came to be with us. And John says, you know, he's the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom's friend, but he's the one. And to hear his voice, John says to his disciples, now my joy is fulfilled. This is, my joy is fulfilled. He must increase but I must decrease. The tenses are, he must continually be increasing, but I must be decreasing. There's a process on both sides here. Um, Another great takeaway here, I mean, this is not one of my favorite verses, uh, because I'm too selfish to be happy about decreasing. Um, It speaks to all the self-help programs we have, that's for sure. Uh, Self this, self that, self-ish, you know, self, self, self. He says, no, no, we have to decrease. He has to increase. It can grate on me. You know, that that means takeaway in my home, father, husband. Where in that role can I be decreasing and let Jesus be increasing in the way I respond and act? Where, when I'm driving, can I be decreasing and let Jesus increase in the way I am when my foot's on the gas pedal? You know, in human relationships, as a grandpa, where we work, where we go to school, with our friends that hurt us or betray us, how can we see this work out where there's a genuine decreasing of who we are because there's an increasing of who Jesus is in our lives. Great takeaway for for you and I to sit with that, to think about it. I didn't say it. He said it. He's the greatest prophet that ever lived. And he says, I have to decrease. He has to increase. And he was willing to accept that. You can't have anything unless it's given to you from above can't go beyond that, can't come short of that. You can't brag about it. He did it. He's the one that has to increase. I'm the one that needs to be decreasing. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Interesting there, above three times, earth three times. He's making this so clear. 
He that cometh from above. Now look, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, in verse 11, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, to Nicodemus, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now John is saying, look, he that's come from above is above all. That, that's his place. He that is of the earth, speaking of himself, is earthly or of an earthly origin and therefore speaks of the things of earth, you brutal white vipers, so forth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And of course, then he must be increasing. I must be decreasing. And he says this, what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receives his testimony. That which he hath seen, the idea is he's seen it and is still presently seeing it, and that which he has heard as an established fact, that's what he is constantly testifying of. And he says, yet no man receives his testimony. said in chapter 1, the world was made by him, and he came into the world, the world knew him not. Came unto his own, the Jews, and his own received him not. But to as many as receive them, to them he gives power to be the children of God, not by the will of the not by blood or the will of flesh, but by the new birth. Here he says that which he has seen and is still seeing, that which he has heard, and it's an established fact, is what he's testifying. He said that to Nicodemus. That which we've seen. That's what we try to tell you. That which we've heard. It, you know, from heaven. We've seen. Who's we? Look, creation. Let us make man in our image our likeness. Jesus would say, in the beginning, God made them male and female. There's not evolution. There's not a gap theory. There's not unending thousands of years till amoebas turn into Adam and Eve. He says, in the beginning, God created them. Male and female. How did he know? He was there. He saw it. He heard. He was there. He was in the councils of God before the world was formed. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. He was there when the flood came. He was there in the days of Noah. So when he tells us the last days are going to be like the days of Noah, how does he know? He's seen it. He's seen it all. He's heard it. Tells us about Abraham and says, before Abraham was, I am. How does he know? Because he was with Abraham. He knew Abraham. He knew David. He knew Solomon. In the Psalms, he says, a body thou hast prepared for me. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. He had heard. He knew he was coming. When he walked among them, he told them of the things that would come. He spoke of 70 A.D. He knew it would come. He, he spoke to them about his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. He spoke about the last days that we're living in today. He spoke about the moment he would come for his church. How did he know? He had seen it, and he's still seeing it. He spoke about the last seven years of human history. 
before his return. Spoke about the millennial kingdom. How did he know? He's seen it. And he tells us that we're justified, sanctified, and glorified. How does he know? He's seen it. He's heard. What he has seen and heard, that's his testimony, that which he testifies of. And yet no man receives his testimony. Notice that. Don't be surprised in the world we're in. No man receives his testimony. Verse 36 will elaborate on that. He that hath received his testimony has set his seal, certainly John the Baptist, but us as well. He that hath received his testimony has set his seal that God is true. You get saved, God is true. You know it. Well, how do you know? Well, you know that you know. That, you know, the Lord. Well, how do you know? Well, I know that I know that I know. He that has received his testimony has set his seal, and God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth, continually gives, not the Spirit, by measure unto him. The reason, because the Father loveth, the way he loves is he's constantly lavishing on the Son the Spirit. Loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. So, John presents this interesting picture, and he does it a number of times. He whom God hath sent. And he tells us this. God so loved the world, remember, that he gave his only begotten son. What does that giving look like? He tells us in the next verse, he sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here he says, he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. He says in chapter 7, he that speaketh of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeketh the glory of him, uh, the same is true, and uh, seeketh the glory of him that sent him, the same is true. So here it says, he speaks what he's heard. He, he, the one who sent him, he speaks the words of God. He tells us again in chapter 8 here, um, it says, I am, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Again, we know that uh, as we come to the end of the book of John, that we he's going to use this word it's about 40 times in John's gospel, twice in chapter 2. The only word he uses more, I believe, is father. But over and over again, he talks about being sent. I'm the one who is sent. He has sent me. And uh, and the, the thing that we take away from that is, look, sometimes we think, well, God, you know, he's holy. He's got lightning bolts in his hand. And the only way he could deal with us, because we're miserable and sinners, is to send his son. And now that Christ has died for our sins, he kind of stands between us and the Father to try to calm the Father down because he's in a bad mood about our sins. The Catholics do it with Mary. If you get nowhere with Jesus, go to Mom and talk to her. The Bible doesn't know anything at all of this. Jesus said, 
if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish. He hasn't sent his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It says he sent his Son to demonstrate the love of Almighty God. The coming of Jesus Christ is not to get somebody to stand between us and an angry God. The coming of Jesus Christ is displaying the heart of a loving God who is so broken over us that he sent his own Son. What did it cost him? You don't measure a gift by its value. You measure a gift by its cost. You can be a billionaire and give somebody a new Rolls Royce and it didn't cost you nothing. What is it when you love somebody and you kind of got to borrow a little money to get them something for Christmas or for their birthday? You know, it's cost. What did it cost the father when he sent his son? What does it cost a parent if they watch their son or their daughter go off to a foreign mission field with the military? What does it cost a spouse every morning when they watch their spouse, who's a law enforcement officer, go out the door not knowing if they're going to come back that night? What does it cost a parent if they have a prodigal and they've got to watch the police take them away? It was a matter of cost. What did the father say to the son before he was sent? What did the son say to the father? What love there must have been in their conversation. You can only measure a gift by the love that's behind us. You know, you just, if it's just easy, that's one thing. But if, you, if somebody knows, wow, this cost somebody, they did this because they care. Infinite love, an infinite gift is produced by infinite love. And Jesus is saying here that the Father sent me, for he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure to him. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. That's why he was sent. He was sent to demonstrate the love of God. Now, it's interesting, as we come to the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, Jesus will say, As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And he says, the Son of Man doesn't bear testimony of himself. The Father who sent him, he bears testimony. We don't have to strive. We don't have anything unless it was given to us from above. We can rejoice when we see Christ being glorified and, and our cred is kind of waning. Can we be that selfless? Can we actually... Realize it's good for me to decrease so that he can increase. As he sends us, are we willing simply to be the messengers of his love? Are we simply to tell the lost world what it cost 
God Almighty in heaven to give his Son, who's our Savior. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do people see Christ in us? Do they see the love of God in us? Because sometimes it's hard to measure that out. When somebody stabs you in the back, somebody betrays you, somebody gives you a hard time, somebody cuts you out in traffic, uh, whatever it might be. He sent us to do the same thing. This world is lost. A lot of this world thinks God is angry at them. A lot of this world thinks there can't be a God because if there's a God, where's his love? How come children are How come there's war? How come there's prejudice? How come there's injustice? And they can do that. But, he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. That's what we're doing here. We'll do it to the measure he gives us his grace to do it. I can't do someone else's job. Someone else is not going to do my job. I'm going to be what I'm going to be by his grace, only by what he's given. No cred of my own, and so will you. And sometimes we think, well, I only have, you know, you know, like I have this kid working in my shoe store, and I, I just think the Lord wants me to witness to him. And that kid ended up to be D.L. Moody, who changed the entire world after that shoe store guy led him to Christ. We, we, we tend to, you know, minimize things sometimes and not realize every moment, every time we're letting him increase, there's something then given to us from above. There's something that he wants us to say or do or some way to reach out and to demonstrate his love to a lost, hopeless, broken world. And he says, and here's, you know, the summation is that he that believeth is believing. In the process of believing, trusting on the Son, hath everlasting life. The present tense has in his possession right now everlasting life. If you have trusted Christ, what's ruined you for this world is something else has taken up residence in you. And by the Holy Spirit, you have eternal life today. Yeah, you're going to have it more clearly when we get raptured and you stand in his presence. You'll realize more. But that doesn't at all negate the quantity of eternal life that's in our lives right now. He's given to us eternal life. Look, I believe Jesus is coming. Do you? Okay. Uh, I believe we can argue about when the rapture happens. And some people can be wrong and I can be right. That doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> But we believe that Christ is coming. I, I believe he's going to set up a kingdom. Do you? I, I believe that we're going to one day walk on streets of gold and walls of jewels. Do you believe that? That's because you have eternal life. Not because you've lost your mind. You know, a shrink is going to want to put us on the couch when we tell him all those things. How could all those things be real to us? It says, those who have trusted the Son and are trusting the Son are in possession of eternal life. He that believeth not the Son, and the sense of that is, look, 
the son's testimony we set up here. He's above all that which he's seen and heard. That's what he testifies of. No man receives his testimony. It has nothing to do with what he demonstrates or says is true or not. It is true. It comes from heaven. He's testifying of what he knows, what he's seen, what he's heard. There's nothing wrong, imperfect, questionable about the testimony. It doesn't lack power. It doesn't lack light. It says here the problem is the one who hears that testimony and responds to it and believes it is in possession of everlasting life. He that believes not or is not being subject to, is the idea, the son shall not see life. The idea is the one who's disobeying that testimony, the wrath of God abides on him, is already on him and is already abiding on him. Because if you're in a, a sin-cursed world with a sinful attitude and a sinful rejecting of the love of God who has no way of showing a greater demonstration than sending his own son that he had to release from the other side. Again, Christmas. To us a child is born, a son is given. So it says, for those of us who have received that testimony, it's, it's given to us eternal life. We possess it today, and we're going to move into it in greater and greater measure. He who refuses to obey that testimony is the same one we've obeyed, those who refuse to. It's, the problem is not the testimony. It's crystal clear. It comes to every race, every person, everywhere in the world, there's a testimony. He that refuses to obey that, it puts an onus on the one who's rejecting. He who refuses to trust him and believe that, the wrath of God is the only other thing. Love of God, wrath of God, refuses to love God, already abides on him. So he's saying, look, guys, everybody's going to him to get baptized. I wish everybody would go to him to get baptized. No man can have anything unless it's given to him from above. And you know, you guys, I told you, I'm not the Christ. I've just come to prepare his way. And he said, you know, it's, it's like in the wedding. I, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I don't have the bride. He's got the bride. But this is all of this has come to this point that I hear his voice now. I'm fulfilled. My joy is real. I, I'm listening to the voice of the Messiah. He must increase. I must decrease. Because he's from above. He's from above is above all. He that is from the earth is earthly, speaks earthly things. But he who has come down from heaven is above all. And he speaks the things that he's seen and he's heard. The one who has sent him hasn't given the spirit to him by measure. This is true, it's moving freely, it's moving in power. And God loveth, the Father loveth the Son. He sent him to us. John the Baptist says to his guys, this is God's will. This is a miraculous undertaking. And it's a great rescue. It's the great rescue. You hear some of these characters talking about the great reset. This is the great, greatest reset that ever got reset right here. No other resets compares to this reset. 
because this is everlasting life. So he says, he who receives him. Look, guys, don't tell me he's taking the crowds away from us. Whoever receives him has eternal life. But whoever rejects him doesn't have life. But the wrath of God abides on him. He's the last thing that John would say to his disciples, of course, and before he was put in prison, we're told specifically. So some great takeaways. You can't have anything less given to you from above. We've all known that. I've known people in the ministry. Oh, I have a healing ministry. Be healed. They pray for people. And they say, oh, the problem was they didn't have enough faith to get healed. Really? The problem is you didn't have a healing gift. That's why they didn't get healed, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we see these things all the time. I have authority to do this. You're thinking, oh, would you go please have authority somewhere else? You know, just, you know, you, you can't have anything functional, worthwhile, unless it's given not one thing, unless it's given to you from above. That's why every joint and ligament should supply. We're different from one another. God's called us to different things. Our willingness to decrease so we can increase will be relative to the rewards that we receive, not what people, how people judge it on the, on the horizontal here. And Christ is speaking to us about eternal things. And we, we take hold of that because he's seen the end from the beginning. He's seen it all and heard it. And what we realize is that God loves us so much that he sent his son. What was that goodbye like? What did they say to each other? We can't imagine that in eternity. How did they look at each other? What did they feel? We're creating his image and likeness. We only have feelings because God has feelings. We're only able to love our sons and our daughters because God loved his son and we're creating his image and likeness. We're only able to care about our parents because we're created in his image and his likeness. Whatever pain you would think you would feel sending your son or your daughter into a violent and sinful situation to watch them die does not compare to what the Father in heaven felt in his heart as he sent his son, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And what, what, what were those, par- what's that parting? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I know that, you, get, you don't put it on your bumper sticker, but he must increase. We got to decrease. I know that. We know that for sure. And we know that he was sent and, and God wants to send us. What are we, what are we worth to the rest of this world unless we know his love? To the degree we know his love is to the degree we have a testimony. All men will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. And he finally says after the resurrection to the guys, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things. We look at them, Lord. We pray. uh, that you would speak to our hearts. We sit alone with this, increasing, decreasing, and that doesn't always, it grates on us sometimes, Lord. Uh, Lord, learning to love the way you love, we're, we're not up to the task without your spirit. You said the spirit was not given to you with measure, Lord. We need a greater filling that the love of Christ could be shed abroad from our hearts. 
And Lord, we we look to you right now. We pray that as we lift our voice, Lord, uh, that our heart would rise along with these words. And we pray, Lord, safety for everyone going and coming today, driving with this uh, snow, this weather. And we trust you in all these things, Lord. Sit with us as individuals this week and speak to us personally, privately, deeply. We pray in your name. Amen.